Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hello, everyone. Welcome to LSE for this evening's hybrid event, uh, which is put on by European Institute and the Department of Methodology. A uh, warm welcome to the audience uh, that is here and also to our audience following us online. My name is Denisa Kostovitra and I'm an associate professor uh, of global politics at the European Institute. Tonight's event continues a series of discussions we've been having here at the LSE about Russia's invasion on Ukraine uh, that started earlier this year. With its unfolding human tragedy and physical devastation, this major conflict in Europe has touched virtually on all aspects of politics and international relations. We've been discussing and rethinking the issues that have to do with the global political order, security, changing nature of warfare, international criminal law, economics, migration, social media, and so on. And it's really important to discuss all these uh, aspects. Yet, I think among all these aspects, I think one issue is uh, not so much as it is overlooked, but it's almost assumed as self-understood. And that is the question of identities. I think to us, for political scientists, the fact that we kind of gloss over this question of identities is no big surprise. Uh, identities are notoriously difficult to study. Usually political scientists approach identities as kind of fixed attributes. And when they spoke, speak about conflicts, they talk about groups in conflict. So in this case, Ukrainians and Russians, and yet, Identities are changeable historically, contemporaneously, and the war has a huge impact on the sort of reconstruction of identities. And arguably, it is a key topic that we need to understand in order to understand the path to war and also how we can get out of it. So I'm particularly delighted to uh, welcome a panel of uh, experts tonight were uniquely well informed to address um, the issue of the war uh, in Ukraine from this particular uh, perspective. I'm pleased to be welcoming Dr. Rory Finin and Dr. Olesia Chromechuk to LSE today. And also I'm pleased to be joined by my LSE colleague, Dr. Ali Knott. Olesia Chromechuk is a historian and writer she has taught history of East Central Europe at several British universities. Olesia is the author of The Death of a Soldier Told by His Sister, and another one, Undetermined Ukrainians, Post-War Narratives of the Waffen-SS Galicia Division. She's currently the director of the Ukrainian Institute London. Next to Olesia is Rory Finin, Rory Finin is University Associate Professor of Ukrainian Studies at the University of Cambridge. He is also the convener of Cambridge's Disinformation and Media Literacy Working Group. 
Rory launched Cambridge Ukrainian Studies in 2008. His primary research interest is interplay of literature and national identity in Ukraine. His new book, Blood of Others, Stalin's Crimean Atrocity and the Poetics of Solidarity was published in March by University of Toronto Press. And last but not least, uh, Dr. Ellie Knott is political scientist and associate professor in qualitative methodology in the Department of Methodology. Her current, here at the LSE, her current research interests include the politics of identity and citizenship, predominantly in the post-Soviet space and qualitative research methods, primarily ethics of research. This year, Ali published her first monograph, The Kin Majorities, Identity and Citizenship in Crimean and Moldova, with McGill Queen's University Press, and her research has been published in top professional uh, journal. So let's give warm LSE welcome to our speakers. Okay, so our speakers will um, make their introductory comments for about 15 minutes, uh, after which uh, you will have a chance to put your questions to the panel. Um, for those of you following us on Zoom, you can start uh, putting your questions uh, in the chat, but uh, for you who are here, uh, I'll collect questions in rounds uh, after their, uh, the introductory uh, remarks. Uh, for those of you who are using Twitter, our hashtag is hashtag LSE Ukraine. And I would also kind of like to ask you to uh, put your phones on silent. Uh, we are recording this event. Uh, this event will be available. Hopefully we won't have any technical uh, difficulties. So um, shall we proceed? And uh, we'll, uh, Alessia will speak first, followed by Rory, and then uh, Ali will uh, go as far as the introductory remarks are concerned. Thank you very much um, for that introduction. Can you hear me? And most of you can see me, perhaps not all of you. Um, uh, thank you, it's, a, it's an honor to be here and to be joined by colleagues whose research I admire and whose uh, tireless work on Ukraine, I absolutely adore and I'm so grateful to them for, for it. When we started discussing this event, I decided that uh, I'm going to try and because we, we wanted to make a link between, you know, 2014 when the war really started, uh, annexation of Crimea and, and what's happening today. And I decided to go back to one of the texts that I wrote, I think it was in May, so soon after uh, the start of the full-scale invasion, uh, when, I, when I was trying to make sense of it in that uh, sort of context, you know, how does this, how is this a development of, uh, of what started in 2014? And that's a text that ended up in this edition of the book that you already kindly mentioned, The Death of a Soldier Told by His Sister, um, where I discuss, uh, discuss the death of my brother. He, he was killed in action in 2017 in Luhansk region. So um, the text is trying to process uh, the difference between, you know, what happened in 2008 and for uh, 2014 and for eight years since then and how uh, the world discovered Ukraine on the 24th of February, 2022. So I'll read that. Um, the chapter is called An Opportune Moment. Things have changed since the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. On the 24th of February, 2022, the contours of the map of Ukraine lit up on TV screens all over the world. The country was being placed on the mental maps of viewers who were watching Ukrainian cities and towns being bombed more or less live. The journalists who had been sent to Ukraine a few months prior 
as the Russian troops had been swarming around the country's borders, finally had the picture they came for. Explo explosions on the horizon of the ancient city of Kyiv, a capital city so similar to the ones from which their viewers were watching these war reports. When I first arrived in the UK, most locals didn't have a clue where Ukraine was, and the knowledge of those who did was limited to, to Chernobyl and Shevchenko. Not the 19th century romantic poet, the founder of the nation, Taras Shevchenko, but Andriy Shevchenko, a footballer who was popular at the time. When the Orange Revolution happened in 2004, the map of Ukraine briefly appeared on TV screens of Westerners. Reporters who were frequently based in Moscow and had little knowledge of the country they were actually reporting on painted Ukraine as split between pro-Europeans and pro-Russians. In 2014, Ukraine's life on the Western screens was more prolonged than 10 years earlier. But the narratives were still oversimplified and heavily influenced by Russian propaganda attempts to discredit Ukrainians' fight against authoritarianism. Ukraine continued to be misunderstood. It was just too complex to get one's head around. And at the same time, there was no pressing need to get one's head around it. The occupation of Crimea and Russian aggression in the Donbass brought Ukraine back into newsrooms. As Ukrainians kept losing lives in the fight for their territorial integrity, they were gaining clarity of vision about the country they were building with blood, sweat, and tears. But having expressed its deep concern, the world moved on. Ukraine fatigue descended until the full-scale invasion of February 2022, when things began to change. And the world decided that it was time to discover this terra incognita. You've been in touch with us before with some ideas for collaboration on a project on Ukraine, haven't you? I heard this question from the program manager of yet another important Western cultural institution that had decided to do an event on Ukraine, but had quickly figured out that it didn't have the in-house expertise to make sure that they got it right at such a sensitive time. That was me. Yes, I responded. But it didn't seem to have worked out for you then. I added cautiously, trying to make a point, but wishing, not wishing to offend. It didn't. Well, that's because my interlocutor looked for the words to explain why a project on Ukraine had not seemed timely for their organization a year or so ago, the last time we spoke. Ukraine wasn't trending then. There was no war on, right? Except there was a war on. But we in Western Europe could afford to ignore it to the point that we seem to have persuaded ourselves that Russia's war in Ukraine began on the 24th of February 2022. The cultural institution I was talking to could no longer afford to ignore the war, if not because it was claiming so many more lives and threatening security in Europe as a whole, then because it, took, it would look bad when other similar institutions had done an event on Ukraine, but theirs hadn't. It didn't work out last time, that's true. But now is an opportune moment, said my interlocutor. An opportune moment. So that is what the war was for them. In many ways, it was true. Wars can present opportunities to change, for change that seem impossible in peacetime, from granting rights to women, at least some rights to some women, to changing migration policies to accommodate war refugees, at least some refugees, to introducing sanctions against an aggressor, at least some sanctions. Those opportunities tend to, tend to come at a very high cost though. 
the cost is measured in people's lives. Before the 24th of February 2022, Russia's aggression had already caused much destruction, pain and grief. Nearly 2 million Ukrainians had been displaced, mostly internally, so the EU didn't need to worry about accommodating them. Russia had occupied 7% of the territory of Ukraine, which meant the people in Crimea and the Donbass were living in constant threat of being kidnapped, tortured, or murdered if they opposed the regime or if the thugs in charge of their cities decided that they wished to appropriate their flats, cars, or businesses. Thousands had been killed. None of that was enough to bring about change. Towns and cities razed to the ground, thousands of civilians killed by shelling or shot in the head at close range, thousands more tortured, injured, made homeless, millions displaced within Ukraine and in the EU. That seemed to be sufficient to bring the world's attention to Ukraine. The size of the loss, it turns out, matters when it comes to opportune moments. I had the urge to say, to say all of this when speaking to the cultural institutions program manager. When I was asked to explain the country that no longer fit into the image of a godforsaken, corrupt, post-Soviet space, with its people who displayed defiance when they were expected to display victimhood. I wanted to ask why Ukraine had been of no interest to them for the last eight years or the last 30 years, but I didn't. Instead, I asked how I could be of help. I had to recognize that for Ukraine, this too was an opportune moment. This was the moment when the situational interest in Ukraine that emerged as a result of Russia's full-scale invasion had to be turned into structural changes. These changes were needed not only to finally get to know Ukraine as it really was, and not as Russia presented it, but also to understand the challenges that Russia's aggression presented to the wider world. It was an opportunity for the rest of the democratic world to ask the question that was being answered in Ukraine. What is the cost of freedom? This was the moment when having shown the world its resilience, self-reliance and collective strength, Ukraine had to stop being the object of patronizing lecturing and become a subject with experience that was of existential value across the world. I am not a fan of comparing affairs of states or nations to those between people, for instance, explaining the relationship between Russia and Ukraine through the metaphor of a divorce that had gone badly. But there is something in the way Ukraine had been perceived in the West that I recognize in my personal experience. Being an immigrant and a woman, it has always been a struggle to have my voice heard, sometimes quite literally. To have the courage to raise my hand and ask a question in a Q&A session when all other raised hands were those of older men. To speak with enough confidence so that people listened not to my accent, trying and failing to place it on their mental maps, but to the meaning of my words to break through a wall of ignorance veiled as superior knowledge. For a long time, I experienced what one of my academic friends described as epistemic mistrust. Referring to the same experience, another friend referred to those of us who had raised the alarm about this war, but had not been heard as modern day Cassandras. That is, we found ourselves in possession of the sort of knowledge that was vital, but not desired. 
As the doors that had been previously shut began to open and people who would not have given a second thought to Ukraine began to arrange talk shows, write op-eds and curate exhibitions on the country, they started to look for a Ukrainian voice that could explain to them everything from Volodymyr the Great to Volodymyr Zelensky, preferably in the five minutes they had allocated for this and in a form that was accessible. However, while being given the voice, I still felt like someone who was expected to contribute her local knowledge. For instance, to explain how to pronounce an unreasonable combination of consonants in the, in the name of the city such as Zaporizhia, or as someone who could, who, who could talk emotionally and passionately just before the real commentators were brought on to discuss the same issues objectively. While I was being invited to participate in a conversation, I was not being invited to steer it. The familiar epistemic mistrust was turning into epistemic exploitation. It took a while for me to decide that this was the opportune moment, not only to fill the huge gap in the knowledge on Ukraine, but also to shape the questions that I was being asked. To retain attention on Ukraine when the discussion turned to Russia to promote Ukrainian anti-imperial literature to those who bemoaned the decolonization of Pushkin, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky. To not only encourage the epistemic trust of Ukraine, but also reveal the epistemic value of the experience possessed by the country and its people, the country that surprised the world. The international community gave it three days before it would fall to Russian aggression. Instead, we witnessed an unprecedented resilience of the state and astounding defiance of its people. For those people, the lines from Shevchenko, the poet, not the footballer, were not some dusty words pulled out of a drawer once a year to be recited with pathos beside his monument. Since the 19th century, they were written, when they were written, they have served as a call to action in 2014, when Shevchenko's portrait, creatively dressed as one of the protesters, peeked through the barricades on the Maidan, they were reminders that the fight was just. Since February 2022, they are a statement of fact. Keep fighting and you will prevail. God himself will aid you. Truth and glory stand beside you and the holy freedom. The Ukrainian people have no tradition of venerating their political leaders. Unlike in Russia, politicians lose the support of their disillusioned electorate as soon as they betray their promises. What Ukrainians do revere is freedom. This value of freedom was shaped by the lived experience of generations who were forbidden from speaking their language or even perceiving it as a language, denied statehood and thus political representation, whose culture was belittled and misunderstood. The culture that expressed the urgency of freedom from external colonizers and internal oppression for the nation's survival. But if it is spoken or recorded in a language that isn't really a language, why bother exploring it? Epistemic mistrust of the entire nation, its people and culture created a gap the size of 230 square miles, about two and a half times bigger than the UK. If this gap is filled with everything from Pushkin to Putin, how will the epistemic mistrust be overcome? How will it be understood that for Ukrainians, freedom is not something to be taken for granted, like it is for some peoples west of them, 
or something to be feared, like in the country to the east. It is something to be experienced. As Ukrainians were fighting for their freedom with everything they had, from weapons to words, an opportune moment presented itself for the world to discover what inspired this fight. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. Hello. Uh, thank you all for coming, all of you here and online. Uh, I'd like to thank Ali and Denisa for the kind invitation. It's always a privilege to be on a panel as well with Alessio Kromechuk, and I urge everyone uh, to go out and uh, purchase that book. Um, it is uh, unforgettable. I'd also like to encourage everyone to look out for Ellie's monograph as well, uh, Kin Majorities, which is a terrific study. Um, Olesi has reminded us of an important fact. It's been uh, seven months, over seven months, since uh, the beginning of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, and it's been over eight years since Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine has begun. And by this point, especially here in this audience at LSE, um, we have all read countless commentaries, op-eds, uh, explainers. We've listened to hours of radio interviews, watched uh, so many countless um, debates. So in other words, we should more or less know the contours of the story of this war before, uh, by now, right? We should understand the outlines of the plot as it were, but many of us are still struggling with uh, the genre of this story, so to speak, with even its title, what to call it, what terms do we use? Um, and we're also struggling with our own roles as actors in this story. So a number of points to help clarify where we stand today, especially as they pertain to our own actions. The first is to point uh, out something that I think gets often lost in academic discussions, or at least it gets pushed Push to the end, um, and I want to foreground it right at the start. Um, we have, of course, a role in um, calling upon our uh, political leadership to continue, amplify, to accelerate uh, material and military aid to Ukraine. Um, we need to surge our interest and continue to surge our interest academically, institutionally in Ukraine, in its history, society, and culture, and we need to give constantly as generously as we can to grassroots humanitarian uh, outfits and initiatives on the ground in Ukraine doing remarkable work to provide support and care to the people of Ukraine at this time. Uh, the Ukrainian Institute London has compiled a, a wonderful comprehensive vetted list at uh, ukraineinstitute.org.uk. I encourage everyone to, to bookmark that and to give as, as often as you can. Big international NGOs, we should avoid them whenever possible, of course, support them, but they tend to be too big and too costly. So we need to surge our interest in Ukraine. We need to give, give, and give some more because the challenge that we face right now, uh, seven months in, is grave and dramatic, particularly in its scope and intensity. Europe's largest country is seeking to destroy Europe's second largest country and extinguish its diverse culture and identity and anyone who embraced them. This wanton dis uh, destruction is a direct assault on our security, uh, our values, and our humanity. Russia, in other words, is undertaking genocide in Ukraine. This is an incontrovertible fact. It should be referenced in every news dispatch, in every analysis of this war. We have tragically abundant evidence of Ukrainians targeted, tortured, and killed for who they are. And we have no shortage of cases in which Russian officials 
and figureheads on Russian state television not only announced repeatedly their intention to destroy in whole or in part the Ukrainian nation, to extinguish once again, to erase this self-standing identity, to even deport and assimilate millions of Ukrainians, to expel them as far as the sea of Japan, especially children. But they have also openly applauded their efforts to do so from former president Dmitry Medvedev to state bureaucrats like Maria Livova Bielova, head of the so-called Presidential Commission for Children's Rights. They award medals to soldiers who participated in the massacre of civilians in Bucha, Irpin, Izum, and elsewhere. So they could not be clearer about our, their objectives. And there is absolutely no reason for us not to be crystal clear too. The fact that this genocide, so the heinous brutality of Russian forces on the one hand, this ghoulish rhetoric dehumanizing Ukrainians for years on the other, all of this gives the lie to a narrative that circulates on the political extremes um, where, very sadly, uh, useful idiots of the Kremlin reside. Um, and that is uh, the narrative that this is a proxy war between NATO and Russia, that Ukraine is an unfortunate incidental theater of conflict, um, a tug of war, or at least a site of a tug of war between um, geopolitical forces, that Ukraine really doesn't matter. But we should make no mistake for both Russian society and its leadership, and I want to underscore both here, this war against Ukraine is personal. Look to Putin's many pronounced pseudo-historical speeches, his many comments declaring time and time again, persistently that, quote, Ukrainians and Russians are one people, unquote. Look to even the smallest, most mundane throwaway moments under the radar in places like Mariupol, where it is believed 100,000 uh, 100, Ukrainian civilians have been killed under Russian bombardment, 100,000. And where Putin's forces took care to dismantle very meticulously the Ukrainian language sign for the city and to replace it with a Russian one. Of course, the difference between the Ukrainian and Russian names for Mariupol is infinitesimal. It's only one letter. So Mariupol is destroyed and decimated. Its peoples are murdered and deported and the Kremlin tweaks road signs. Why? We have to understand that part of this is a performance a display of neo-imperial aggression against a former colony. And it's part and parcel of this story that the Kremlin is telling to the Russian populace about expansion somehow being indicative of ontological greatness. So in other words, this is an aggressive colonial war about conquest, conquest of territory, but conquest also of language, culture, and even consciousness itself. Russia's war is a war of genocide against Ukrainians, but not only. It's a war of cascading genocides. Last month, when the Kremlin mobilized hundreds of thousands to fight in its war of aggression, it called up, for instance, a vastly disproportionate number of Crimean Tatars in occupied Crimea. According to some reports, 90% of mobilization orders were sent to the Crimean Tatars, who represent about 15% of the population on the Black Sea Peninsula. Keep in mind, the Crimean Tatars were deported very brutally by Stalin in 1944. They struggled for decades to return to their homeland in the late 1980s, where they endured discrimination and hardship. And since 2014, 
since the annexation of Crimea, that this event is, of course, also calling to mind today. Uh, after that point, they were representatives of the local resistance uh, against Russian annexation. They would enunciate the term annexation um, to, uh, to the world. And right now they're being sent as cannon fodder in a war against the state that they identify with, against the people that they express solidarity. We need to pay attention to Crimea. Uh, you may have seen on Saturday, another series of mysterious explosions uh, taking place in Crimea. It's high time we uh, confront and overcome our amnesia about what has been taking place in Crimea for over eight years. International relations theorists like the realist John Mearsheimer, whose inflexible, obtuse analyses of this war do no credit to the academic profession, um, repeatedly have said that Crimea is so-called lost for good. Um, I think this crimnesia is foolish. It's foolish for a practical reason, and it's foolish for an uh, uh, analytical reason. So as a political reason, or rather a practical reason, as the Crimean Tatar leader Mustafa Jamilev has put it, uh, Crimea is where this war of aggression began in 2014. It is also where it will end. This is something that's been said by Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky as well. And it's foolish for an analytical reason because Crimea is a crucible. It's a vessel through which we can understand the long-standing history of colonialist aggression against Ukrainians and other ethnicities along the former imperial periphery. In the field of Slavic studies, very sadly, I think we've been slow to acknowledge and recognize the historical fact of Russian colonialism, its particular nature. Um, the reasons for this uh, may be a topic of discussion during our Q&A, but what matters for us is to understand that Ukrainians recognize it. They understand that they are fighting against Russian colonialism, that concessions cannot be made to a colonialist aggression bent on genocide, and that this war is part of a long-standing struggle for their own national self-determination, for a um, struggle of social justice that is uniting now past, present, and future generations. So as we confront, all too belatedly in my view, our blindness to the past and present of Russian colonialism, which promotes a doctrine of cultural superiority and an idea that Ukrainians, Georgians, Belarusian, and on and on, have no historical legitimacy or even political agency, as this is all going on, Ukrainians confront it directly. They continue to fight for their existence. In the process, they sacrifice very dearly for the values that we purport to uphold, and they are lifted by their very national identity, which, as Alessia mentioned, is powered by this concept of defiant freedom, or volia. There's a very strong anti-colonial uh, anti backbone, uh, anti backbone to Ukrainian national identity. It's one we need to appreciate and understand. And this concept of defiant freedom is not only for Ukrainians themselves, but for all peoples of the world, particularly those who have come through um, colonialist oppression. So over seven months of physical and psychological bombardment, poll after poll of thousands of Ukrainians offer us really vivid lessons into the reach and resilience of this identity. Let me give you a few examples. The first is that Ukrainian morale is not waning. In fact, it is building. Only weeks ago, Orazumkov Center study revealed that nearly 75% of Ukrainians 
across all regions of the country believe in their victory. This has been a steady response in poll after poll um, over the past months. Over 90% express pride in being uh, Ukrainian, which is the highest result in answer to that question in Ukraine's history as an independent state. In the place of democracy as a privileged form and mode of political organization is also growing as well, while support for authoritarian rule is plummeting. So keep in mind, this is all taking place under the uh, context of a genocidal attack. These types of responses, I would say, are remarkable and perhaps even unprecedented. So to allow for Q&A, let me conclude with a few comments about us and, and our roles in the story of this war. I think the military response here in Britain um, has been responsible and the public response, particularly those supporting refugees, um, has been indeed very laudable. A lot of this support has been actually trying to overcome government inter intervention and obstacles. And in that sense, it's been remarkably successful. But I would argue that we are still uh, largely in the context in which we continue to stick our heads in the sand. Russian politicians and pundits publicly threaten to reduce the United Kingdom to a quote unquote Martian landscape. Uh, they routinely fantasize about our destruction. And for over a decade, they've consistently portrayed us as at war with them, which may come as a surprise to you, particularly given that we've spent years looking at uh, real estate and influence being peddled and sold to Russian oligarchs. On the one hand, it's important not to give too much of a platform to these cartoonishly aggressive uh, voices. But on the other hand, there is a difference between underestimating um, strategically someone who purports to be one's enemy and, of course, engendering public ignorance. We need to place ourselves on more of a mental war footing, we might say. Part of this war footing involves understanding it's not just Putin's war, it's Russia's war. I often actually think back to Orwell's debates in uh, the early 1940s with H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells was very critical of German aggression on the European continent. Um, but was too tentative and reluctant to act aggressively in response. So according to Orwell, people like Wells applied their own logic, their own perception of risk, what he called their own, quote, liberal reasonableness. And they applied it onto German society while underestimating the extent to which Hitler had already enervated German society with fantasies of violent struggle and self-sacrifice. As Orwell wrote in 1940, quote, Hitler has said to them, I offer you struggle, danger, and death. And as a result, a whole nation flings itself at his feet. Part of Putin's broad appeal is precisely this message, struggle, danger, and death, which he articulated most explicitly, most clearly only days ago. We would be remiss not to face up to it. When we understand that this problem is not simply a Putin problem, but a Russian problem, we can cast aside hopes for palace coups and we can focus on what really matters, urgent, decisive support, weapons, weapons, and more weapons to Ukraine and more clear-eyed, defiant analyses of a Russian threat and of Ukrainian victory. Thank you. Thank you, Rory. We'll just uh, put up the slides uh, that Ali will be using in her talk. Um, yeah, thank you um, so much for Alessia and Rory for joining us on this panel, and um, to Denisa, 
Um, Carolina Stern as well, um, and the European Institute and the Department of Methodology for organizing and co-hosting. Um, in 2014, the annexation of Crimea was a rarity. And now in the last few days, Russia has set about annexing four further regions of Ukraine, Kherson, Donetsk, Luhansk, and Zaporizhia. The sham and illegal referenda um, across these four regions should encourage us to revisit and re-question the annexation of Crimea, the referendum results, the legitimacy and meaningfulness of those referendum results, um, because it wasn't only that a referendum was held uh, not in free and fair conditions, it wasn't only that the question offered no status quo option, so this is why I showed the slightly cliched slide by now, the option between Nazis and Russia, it was that we um, view annexation of Crimea through a lens where we make a number of assumptions not only it's about, about its legitimacy, but about Crimeans themselves and their preferences. And we've already talked uh, previously about the misunderstandings uh, within Ukraine, particularly in the West and within Russia as well. And I wanna kind of dwell and unpack some of those misunderstandings. And in part, actually, to be honest, it's kind of a reflexive journey also traced through my own misunderstanding. Um, so the three things that I wanna discuss uh, today which tie together some of my ongoing research uh, with the Russia's war and invasion of Ukraine, uh, re-questioning and revisiting what we think we know about identity um, in Ukraine and, and Ukraine, uh, Crimea in particular, re-questioning and revisiting what we think and that we know about preferences in Crimea prior, uh, prior to annexation in particular regarding citizenship, and then tying this um, together, and I want to talk a bit about the existential forms of nationalist claims made by Russia prior to and during and since the 2012 war. Um, and Denise <laughs> talked about um, kind of the difficulty of studying identity and the lens through which uh, we often focus on identity in kind of fixed categories. And in talking a bit about um, some of the assumptions that we might have about Ukrainian or Crimean uh, identity or identity in Ukraine and Crimea prior to annexation, I kind of want to tackle um, that because a lot of people in the West were surprised around the strength of civic nationalism in Ukraine and the strength of civic identification with Ukraine as a mobilization capacity. And building on the work by Ola Onuk and others and the wealth of kind of evidence that we have prior to the 2020-12 war, we shouldn't be surprised. But I also want to talk a bit about um, some of the civic nationalism, civic forms of identification, um, belief in the state and society of Ukraine in Crimea. Because this, I, I almost didn't believe uh, when I was observing uh, kind of civic forms of identification in Crimea that, that they really existed because few had actually imagined that Crimea was a place where these kinds of civic forms of identification existed in the first place. And why am I showing you this image? I mean, this is one that I've stored in the archive for a while. Um, because you see, I mean, scholars of banal nationalism will know that we like to study flags and symbols, and here you see yellow and blue in Bacchusarai. Again, not something that you would necessarily expect to see, a shop sign kind of resonating with Ukrainian colors. And I use this as a symbol to demonstrate that even in this kind of least likely place in Ukraine, that um, particularly among a post-Soviet generation, that we shouldn't just assume everyone in Russia and Crimea was Russian ethnically uh, or pro-Russian and actually kind of disentangle those two things, but we should also be, be listening and thinking about what civic identification meant. Because particularly amongst the post-Soviet generation that I was interviewing, they didn't want to talk about ethnicity, they eschewed ethnic categories, um, they didn't want to define or think about themselves in ethnic terms, 
they wanted, and they did, emphasize uh, a purely kind of citizenship-based understanding of identity. They wanted to learn Ukrainian, speak Ukrainian, engage with Ukrainian culture, um, and in particular, identified in ways that were quite different to their parents, which is why I kind of highlight the post-Soviet generation, or we could critique that in itself. Um, but they would celebrate, for example, New Year in a different way to their parents. Um, and they very much didn't want to identify in ethnic ways like their parents did. And so they wanted to identify with Ukraine with, as citizens of Ukraine and, and kind of um, that this was a kind of growing category um, in a place that we would least likely expect it. And second, I want to talk about uh, revisiting and re-questioning what we think about preferences in Crimea, um, particularly in, re in regards to Russian citizenship and uh, Russian passports. When I first went to Crimea in 2011, I expected exactly what I had read, that, that Crimea was another case of Russian passportization, or in other words, that um, Crimea was a context where many had Russian citizenship or Russian passports, and this was a normal, everyday, en masse practice. And I didn't find that, and I'll tell you more about that in a second. But it matters because Russia's annexation of Crimea is often framed as matching preferences on the ground, that they were already Russian citizens, so annexation was just a, a matching of that reality. Um, and that's problematic both empirically and also methodologically because the lens of passportization denies agency from individuals. It assumes that a state is giving out passports and there is no individual acquiring citizenship, making a preference. Um, and instead, then I was interested in, well, who has Russian citizenship? Why do they want it? Do they want it? How do they use it? How do they acquire it? Long story short, I never met anyone in Crimea that had Russian citizenship, or at least would discuss that with me. And I'll tell you a few reasons why I think uh, Russian citizenship was not an en masse practice, apart from maybe in kind of military bases and pensioners, military pensioners. Um, but it was inaccessible. It was not possible uh, to become a Russian citizen in Crimea, at least legally. But more than that, very, very few wanted Russian citizenship. It didn't give them anything that they needed. It uh, didn't give them anything that they wanted in terms of rights. They didn't even really want to move to Russia. Crimea was sunny. Why would you want to move to somewhere colder or more authoritarian? Um, but a minority did want Russian citizenship and couldn't get it, which is why I say I'm reasonably confident that Russian citizenship was not a non-mass practice. These individuals I describe as politicized Russians they weren't just ethnic Russian, they were extremely pro-Russian nationalists, but they were also in local pro-Russian organizations and political parties. And they wanted Russian citizenship as leverage against Ukraine. They were lobbying kind of Russian uh, state organizations for Russian citizenship, but could not acquire it. But they were a minority. And instead, the majority were entirely disinterested. As I said, they respected uh, Ukraine's laws of single citizenship. And I reasonably believe that they wouldn't have wanted or acquired it, even if it had been possible. And instead, they kind of critiqued, laughed at, uh, criticized um, these politicized Russians that I describe and framed them as professional Russians, which is to say that they didn't really see their nationalism as legitimate. They saw it more as business interest. Um, and politicized Russians were the ones who took power during and as a consequence of uh, Russia's annexation of Crimea. So agreeing with Wrighton, who has written about this as well, I very much see uh, Crimea as being passportized. And actually here I do mean passportized uh, after annexation and not before. Um, and I think that's important because Russia did not offer people a choice when it came to, to annexation and citizenship afterwards. The options were become a Russian citizen and maintain property rights, as an example, 
or register as a foreigner. And that is passportization, that that was a coercive choice. But it was not passportized before and people weren't making these preferences before. So was Crimea annexed for reasons of identity, for reasons of citizenship, or what I have recently tried to describe as a financial and criminal incentive structure? I think we really need to revisit those who are professional Russians, because if the most pro-Russian nationalists are those who are involved in organized crime and corruption, and we know that they were, and they are, what is really going on? We're told that even if Crimea's referendum was illegal, that preferences um, in support of annexation still matter. After all, weren't Crimea's residents already pro-Russian? And I would argue that they were not. Were they not already Russian citizens? And I argue that they were not. All of these kind of assumptions are really problematic. When Russian ethnicity or speaking Russian was complex and identifying as Russian or speaking Russian did not necessarily align for many, many people with supporting Russia, especially the Putin regime. Um, and as I told you, many identified in kind of civic and non-ethnic terms. So I want to come onto this idea of um, existential nationalism or kind of the existential nature of nationalist claims made by Russia under Putin towards Ukraine. So far, I have also used the kind of common dichotomy in nationalism studies between civic and ethnic to question what we know about identity and nationalism in Crimea prior to annexation. But when it comes to, well, the last eight years, but particularly since February 2012, these concepts of civic and ethnic, or even concepts of imperial nationalism, I feel like don't entirely get to the heart of what is going on, or Russia's kind of under motivation for what is going on. Um, so on the one hand, the, the stakes of Ukrainian uh, mobilization and engagement in civic nationalism are also ex existential. Um, the stakes of the conflict are about freedom, as we've heard, about the right to exist as a nation and a sovereign state, and in particular, as a, a the right to be free and to be a nation state separate to Russia's vision of it. If Russia stops fighting, there'll be no war. If Ukraine stops fighting, there'll be no Ukraine. But for Russia in particular, the concept of existential nationalism helps us see that while the scale of violence is unprecedented and the terms of the escalation are unprecedented, the fact that Russia views Ukraine as not having a right to exist as a democracy, as a self-governing entity, unless it is tethered to Russia, is actually a continuation of Russia's non-consensual approach to Ukraine. Russia is fighting for a version of Ukraine that is subservient to Russia's idea of what it should be as a nation state. Under Russian hegemon, geopolitically, where Ukraine's national idea and interpretation of history can be vetted and vetoed by the Russian state and the Putin regime. Just as with Russia's annexation of Crimea and its covert efforts to occupy and stoke conflict in Donetsk and Luhansk or Bust since 2014, Russia's invasion since 2012 is further proof of its non-consensual approach to Ukraine. Regardless of Ukraine's sovereignty and whether Ukraine and Ukrainian citizens agree, Russia treats Ukraine as a state permanently tethered to its idea of what it should be, as a state almost incapable of governing itself, interpreting its own history, having a right to interpret its own history, forming its own foreign policy, deciding if it is overrun by Nazis, or determining who Nazis are in the first place. As Putin haughtingly claimed in 2021, preceding the war and invasion of Ukraine, true sovereignty of Ukraine is possible only in partnership with Russia. And Rory made a, a, a similar quote about this kind of non-consensual approach. And in particular, the targeting of civilian infrastructure and the mobilization to protect civilian, in, in, uh, civilian infrastructure, including cultural and educational um, sites, 
is because Russia under Putin views Ukrainian culture that is separate from Russia's version as illegitimate and an existential threat. It's not only about defeating and demobilizing, but also about demoralizing. To coerce Ukraine into a version that Russia wants and, and to coerce Ukraine into subservience. And I think it's the existential terms of the war that make it scary, but also very hard to see where this is going and how we kind of get out of this. Um, because the stakes of the conflict are such that any alternative for Ukraine is conflicted, conflict, constructed as conflictual for Russia's own existence, even when Russia is losing ground to Ukraine, the existential um, stakes remain. And Ukraine, and more importantly, Ukrainian citizens, will not accept any, any territorial concessions or this kind of continued existential subservience that Russia is seeking, and nor should they. And finally, kind of drawing um, on what previous panelists have said, I think the existential nature of Russia's claims towards Ukraine have epistemic consequences as well, in terms of where Ukrainian studies has sat within, say, British academia, US academia, uh, versus the prominence of Russian studies as well. I think we've often taken for granted too much of kind of Russia's existential understanding of Ukraine and not contrasted that with kind of anti-colonial critiques. Um, and I'll leave that there. Thank you so much. Um, I look forward to it. Thank you so much for such uh, insightful uh, presentations. Um, you raised a host of uh, interesting issues. I was really taken, Alessia, by your point about academic uh, uh, epistemic mistrust. And I just thought actually how difficult it is when you are a voice from within to reclaim that epistemic legitimacy to shape the debate, which is uh, 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 the issue that you address. That, uh, I think that's something that really requires a little bit of reflection whenever we hear um, uh, a Ukrainian voice, you know, participating in the discussions uh, in, in the media. Um, uh, from uh, your uh, presentation, R Rory, I take uh, um, that kind of a relational element of identity construction, and I thought it was really interesting how you raised the, 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 the question of determination, volia, right, and how you then related it back sort of externally, right, to what happens to those who are on the same side of the debate in terms of um, sort of uh, on the same side of the values mm -hmm. that the Ukrainians state, stay, stay for, uh, stand for in their fight. Um, and Ellie, I thought that you raised an important question um, of um, uh, colonialism, but unlike the colonialism that Rory addressed, I thought it was there was an interesting, important dimension there of internal colonialism within Russian nation and a Russian body politic. And just uh, for all of us to uh, sort of think about the risks of understanding the conflict sort of retroactively, right? Sort of um, uh, re-understanding things through the lens of a conflict, which inevitably erases the complexity that there was before, but also uh, in many ways uh, continues during the conflict, but is suppressed. Uh, we have about 35 minutes uh, for uh, questions. 
And uh, just before we move on, I would like to ask the panel if they have any remarks that they would like to make in response to other speakers, or uh, we can proceed straight to questions. Very happy to proceed. Okay, so um, so I'll, I'll collect the questions in in rounds. I would uh, kindly uh, ask you to introduce yourselves uh, and to ask uh, a question. Uh, please wait for the microphone because that's the only way that we can uh, record this event uh, and that uh, everybody who will be trying to listen to it later uh, will be able to, to hear. So uh, we have a gentleman there. I don't know if we have any other questions than a uh, gentleman here and a lady at the back. So let's do three, and I, uh, I noted the other questions, but let's try in threes first. Yeah. Uh, hello, is that okay? Yep. Yeah, Perfect. thank you. Um, the name's uh, Ewan Grant. I'm now a broadcaster and journalist who's been covering the war since December. Uh, I have worked previously on a number of um, EU law enforcement assistance programs in Ukraine. And I heartily endorse the um, critical comments about the self-centeredness and selfishness of some, not all of those programs. So general rule, they were not exactly the Entebbe raid at all. My question is, um, there was a reference to useful idiots. Um, what reactions have there been in the academic community in the UK and Europe to the war? Um, how much have attitudes changed? And how many apologists for Russia have Russian wives or partners? Thank you. Oh, we have a question here. Hi, uh, my name is Zenke. I'm a master's student in the European Institute. Uh, my question is um, getting to the topic of, uh, of Crimea and sort of, like you said, near the, the, the end or the way the, uh, the war uh, would end. Um, do you see there any, being any danger that the, the financial and material support of the West could um, decrease or, or any, any problems with that holding up as it is um, if the Ukrainian government more explicitly makes the makes the goal of recapturing Crimea. Thank you. And we have a question at the back. And I'm also following the questions on Zoom for those of us who are following online. Thank you. Uh, I have a question about um, genocide. Can you please uh, introduce yourself? Yeah, sorry, is, uh, do you hear me now? Yes. Uh, so I have a question about genocide. Um, Before you ask the question, can you please introduce yourself? Ah, sure. Uh, my name is Anna. I'm a master's student of human rights, policy and practice uh, in Roehampton University. Uh, so my question um, is, uh, as I mentioned, about the context of genocide, uh, because currently there is case in ICJ uh, from Ukraine. Uh, and also, um, at the same time, many lawyers and human rights defenders talking that it's very difficult to prove as a crime of genocide because you need to prove an intention. Um, but I, I was wondering 
is there something that uh, researchers, particular in civil society um, representatives, can do to uh, push this uh, to push accountability for this crime in terms of uh, responsibility to protect concept and also in terms of uh, universal jurisdiction? Thank you. Could uh, answer some of these questions, so maybe if you could. Uh... Shall I give the first question a go about the changes in academia? Uh, UK, um, I'll be talking about UK academia. So this is what I mentioned in that passage that immediately we started to see situational interest in Ukraine and also situational response uh, to, um, especially to fellow academics from Ukraine. So a lot of um, temporary fellowships have been created uh, more or less straight away since the start of full-scale invasion, and they are sort of between three and 12 months in length. Um, the key word there is temporary. And the second key issue to, to understand about them is in most cases, as far as I know, and if I'm wrong, please let me know if you have different information, they were sort of created bottom-up as opposed to management of universities stepping in and saying, we found money for this. It was fellow academics who were in touch with like. Uh, who were in touch with other academics in Ukraine, uh, who were saying, right, we're going to find money, whatever it costs us, we'll make sure that we create these, uh, these fellowships. Um, so, yeah, that, that, and that, I think, points to the heart of the problem that, you know, they're temporary, they are not being necessarily translated into permanent change of the system. Um, so the, the, the other, and and that, I think that's what really has to happen. There have to be permanent chairs of Ukrainian studies in a variety of universities. There have to be improved collections. There has to be changed curriculum. I mean, I've been I've been teaching in quite a few universities over the last ten years, and each time, I mean, I taught two modules on Ukraine: one at CIS, uh, which is the module created by Andrew Wilson, and another one at Cambridge, which is the module created by by Rory. Uh, and nowhere else was I able to teach Ukraine unless I made uh, Ukraine somehow visible. It would always fall between the cracks. Uh, and I, I'm not sure if that has changed or if there's much desire to change it because academia is very slow. The other thing that I think needs to change is also the approach to Russian studies. The, I think there's still lack of desire to approach Russian studies critically. And there's enormous desire among uh, experts of Russia to somehow find this other Russia this good Russia, you know, that they've imagined through 19th century literature and not even approach that 19th century literature critically as well. But I still feel this, this, this enormous desire to give voices to, to Russian opposition, to create panels where Ukrainians and Russians would speak together and to profoundly misunderstand that that is, that is, that is an insensitive approach and a frankly unhelpful approach. And that what we need is critical approach to Russian studies. Mm, yeah. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories, or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. So, Rory, would you like to sure. ask the question on, on uh, genocide and then Ellie on Ukraine? Sure. Uh, on the question of genocide, um, as you say, uh, jurists are constantly reminding us how difficult it is 
to prove intent. Now, I mentioned the intent um, clearly communicated on Russian state television, um, connecting that and specifically those voices to the actions of soldiers and forces on the ground in Ukraine is notoriously hard. Um, I think there's a lot that needs to be done in terms of uh, policing and uh, adjudicating genocide, precisely because the question of intent gets applied so thickly, as it were, um, in this context. As far as what civil society can do, I think part of it is for us to just um, step out of the frame in which genocide becomes something that's very rare in human history. And for us to understand it can happen very often and to call it out when we see it and to have journalists and encourage editors to call it out when we see it. And that's an important role of civil societies to constantly keep the public conversation alive and dynamic to the moment we're living in. Um, yes, I'll pass over to Ellie now in terms of Crimea and perhaps add to that. Um, okay, so caveat, I just, I, I am not, uh, political risk but I mean I think the idea of predicting what western actors may or may not do is a kind of impossible task even like with regards to domestic politics if you can follow what is happening with attack but anyway we're in a turbulent moment and I think predicting what the west uh, may or may not do I think it may be more useful to think about the the fact that I think there's still reasonable support continued support over the last eight years for uh, not recognizing Crimea ever as a part of, of Russia and that it's continued to be the case and I can't see the war in Ukraine kind of changing sorry Russia's war in Ukraine really changing that um, or people holding back Ukraine from um, I don't even really like the word recapturing because it, it presumes that there's this kind of status quo reality, which in some ways there is. Russia is functionally in charge, or at least the Aksana regime under Russia is functionally in charge of what is happening in, in Crimea, but that doesn't make it part of Russia politically, geopolitically. Um, I think the challenge in Crimea is the embeddedness of organized crime and that Military, militarily, politically, geopolitically, Crimea could be in a different space to what it is currently, but that the corruption of organized crime is so embedded within the political economy of, of both the governing elite and Crimean political space and business space that me understanding how that might dissipate, even if militarily things look different, I think that's the, the key thing that I struggle with. Um, and, I, and I don't think it's very helpful for us to keep thinking that Crimea was annexed only because of nationalism and not because of um, these kind of organized criminal interests. Again, as I say, they're the same people, so we should be as concerned by their nationalism as with their organized crime. And uh, yeah, I, I think that is something that I think needs to be considered more, but who knows how Western leaders may wane. Could I just add a sentence on the question of genocide? This is really um, just to urge you all to keep an eye on the work that is being done in Ukraine. The uh, the data that's been collected, the testimonies that have been collected, and I, I, I there are a lot of groups and a lot of organizations working on this. And I'll just highlight one of them, uh, one specific individual, and, and her uh, organization. That's Alexandra Matvichuk, uh, Center for Civic Liberties, I think, right? Mm -hmm. the, the organization is called. Um, the amount of work and the, the the effort that they put into collection of uh, evidence is uh, really impressive. And please support them in any way you can. Oh, Rory? 
just to hop in on the Crimea question, um, if you recall, in 1936, Hitler annexed the Rhineland. And there was a certain sense among Western powers who did nothing in response that effectively Hitler got what was his, you know, it was property of, uh, of, uh, of the German people in its history. There's something that happened in 2014 with the annexation in the sense that the West was, I think, seduced by this notion that somehow this was ancient Russian territory, which is remarkably almost uh, amazingly false and inaccurate. Um, Crimea as a peninsula is a place that's been defined by settler colonialism. That is the indigenous peoples on the continent, on the peninsula have been effaced and replaced by Slavic settlers, including those coming from uh, the oblast of Soviet Ukraine. Um, but nonetheless, in the West, there was a view that somehow Crimea might have been Russia, so Putin took it mm. back. So very much like the Rhineland in this respect. But I would say what's happened over the past week with, or the past few weeks, really, with these absurd, and as our colleague Timothy Snyder calls them, obscene performances of democratic exercise that we have often called in the media referenda, when we shouldn't use the term at all. They have led now to an annexation that, of course, looks uh, remarkably um, cruel, violent, and manufactured. And now Crimea is lumped in them as well in the public consciousness and in the view of Democrats um, and liberals in the West. So I think this is, and I'm not the only one, in fact, many Ukrainian scholars have been pointing out how this has been a strategic blunder uh, for Russia in the sense that now Crimea is within this entire frame of places of Ukrainian territory taken, absconded, and stolen uh, by the Russian Federation, and therefore completely legitimate targets for kinetic military warfare. I think what we've seen um, over the past months of strikes, mysterious explosions, et cetera, in Crimea are showing that the West isn't too afraid with uh, Putin's so-called red lines about the peninsula. Okay, so I'll just um, um, refer to some questions that we are receiving uh, on Zoom, because uh, before we come back to, uh, to the audience here, um, we are having some recurring sort of uh, themes. And uh, for example, Ian Bond from the Center for European Reform is referring, Rory, to your question, making distinction between Russia's and Putin's war. And also sort of his question speaks to Olesia's point to a sense, uh, what can you do to change Russians' perceptions of Ukraine as part, of, as part of historical Russia and see it as a separate sovereign state with its own uh, identity. We had a question from Volodymyr Kulik. Um, this was a question that you've addressed, Olesia. It was about uh, the response of Western academia, particularly Russian and East European studies to Russia's full-blown invasion of uh, Ukraine. And we also have quite a few questions um, of people uh, who are um, following us uh, online asking, I don't know whether I should say it's an expensive question, what will happen? I think, I think, I think actually that really speaks to people's anxieties, watching this brutal violence uh, unleash. So the question that John Newham uh, Newham, who is uh, uh, introduces himself as a London University graduate, says, "Does the panel expect a prolonged war of attrition?" Then someone else um, 
Adrian Lee is talking about uh, annexation of Ukraine as a type of cultural imperialism. Samuel Davis is asking whether this is these actions by Russia can be um, compared to the actions of ISIS in Syria and Iraq. And uh, Maciej Svetlik, who is a LSE um, alumnus, uh, again asks um, what measures would the panel recommend to prevent Russia attempting another conquest a few years after the end of the current uh, conflict? And just to wrap up these questions coming in, uh, do the referenda recently held as a justification for Putin to start using, uh, is an, basically an excuse for Putin to start using excess force, and here is basically reference to um, nuclear uh, weapons. This is questioned by Samuel uh, Davis. So, um, any questions you might want to uh, address? I think uh, maybe this... Uh, uh, I think it's uh, when we talk about uh, 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 genocide, uh, we also talk about when we uh, have our le lectures on, on, on conflict and theories of, on, on conflict, we talk about uh, herbicide as well, which I think we are, uh, you know, we've seen uh, since the Balkans, since the killing of not just peoples of Sarajevo, but uh, the city of Sarajevo. Uh, destructions of towns. Uh, we've seen the same thing in Homs, and we see the same thing playing out in um, in um, in Ukraine. You have scholars like Martin Shaw who say that this shouldn't be sort of a separated as another form of side. It is integral to genocide, um, as well as cultural destruction. And of course, we know that destruction of sort of um, cultural uh, heritage is also uh, being uh, sort of uh, uh, an issue, you know, that we have as part of war crimes, basically trials. Um, so uh, I don't know if there's that some dimension that you would want to uh, uh, comment on, because you've just spoke about uh, a genocide, but I think uh, there is a lot around it. It's not just the people, you know, to kill the people, you need to erase the, 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 any cultural trace of them. Obviously, the change of street names that you mentioned in Mariupol. Um, maybe if I could ask if you could reflect on this uh, 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 sort of uh, more on the role of language in the in in, in the conflict. Uh, uh, yeah, from your perspective. You start with that one? Um, earlier, Ellie showed a slide of a monument being protected by sandbags that I believe was uh, a monument to Taras Shevchenko in Kharkiv, yeah? Um, and it's important to, to note the uh, key efforts, I think, being made to eviscerate various monuments to Ukraine's history, national identity. We could say, for instance, the strike uh, on the museum to uh, Skovoroda outside of um, Kharkiv, um, as well as uh, monuments to uh, Shevchenko. One of them was in the town of Borodyanka outside of Kyiv. Um, and there, there was a very touching story of a young boy who had endured the trauma of Russian occupation, but noted how the Russian soldiers, soldiers took um, care to shoot the head of Taras Shevchenko's monument. 
uh, in the center of town um, and how he was really perplexed and um, disturbed by the senselessness of this. Why shoot a statue? But so there is a, a directed, as I mentioned earlier, personal uh, agenda here that's bound up not only in the past eight years, uh, but going to your point, Denisa, earlier about the, the dangers of effacing, for instance, and conflating various forms of colonialism, internal and external, and looking backward retrospectively and, 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 and pulling this war into the past, I do think it's important for us to wake up to certain moments in the 19th and 18th centuries um, where we have been here before. And we have seen, in fact, Ukrainian voices highlighting um, the, the, the violence of Russian cultural and economic and political colonialism. We've simply forgot about the destruction of the Zaporozhian siege. We've forgotten about um, the massacre at Baturin. Uh, we've not paid attention to the abolition of the Cossack Hetmanate and the trauma that was uh, inflicted on Ukrainian society. At least we look past it. I know I did in my early training. I know I did. And it's come to my attention in new ways now. Um, so cultural uh, violence is a part of this agenda of genocide. It's in, something we need to pay close attention to. I'd like to tackle the two easy questions. The one that uh, was uh, what's going to happen and uh, the first one, what should Ukrainians do to change the perception of Russians um, uh, about Ukraine? Uh, I don't think it's our job to change the perception of Russians about Ukraine. I think it's for the Russians to do that. But I get asked that question almost every time I speak somewhere in public. What, what should we do, we collectively and Ukrainians do, to make sure that Russians take to the streets? It's, it's fascinating that somehow it's up to us to encourage them to take to the streets. I would like to break the bad news that I don't think they're going to take to the streets. And I think I feel more and more confident about that uh, since uh, the, uh, the, the so-called partial mobilization was announced and we saw uh, by some estimates, 300,000 people, roughly the number that they wanted to mobilize, actually leave the country. And then a few days later, the an, an attempt to annex more Ukrainian territory was announced by Putin. And somehow I didn't see those 300,000 people protesting outside of Russia where they were safe. Uh, and let's face it, these are draft dodgers, not anti-war protesters. Uh, so yeah, th that's the sad news. I, I I don't think they are going to necessarily change their view um, about Ukraine anytime soon, but there is something Ukraine can do and will do, and that's win this war. And win it in such a way that will make the Russians realize that their imperialist project isn't working for them. Uh, so that probably will happen. And that, that leads me to the second question of what will happen. I, well, what will happen is Ukraine will win, win the war, no question about that. That's of existential um, uh, you know, it's an existential uh, question for Ukrainians. They have to win the war. But what I really liked, what Rory said earlier, that, you know, that we need to choose our role as actors. But first of all, we need to understand that we are actors, not spectators who sit back and wait for Ukraine to surprise us yet again. If we want Ukraine to win this war sooner rather than later, then we also need to participate very actively in that uh, in that battle, in that struggle, and support Ukrainians uh, in any in every way that we each can, and each of us can do it. Um, at least to understand that our troubles here, the cost of living, the rising uh, cost of energy, it, it's it's all connected to to Putin's blackmail uh, of of the world. Um, so yeah, let's be actors uh, and not spectators. Um, 
let's return. Or do you want to say something? I mean, I just have a few, I'll yeah. be very quick. Mm -hmm. um, to Vladimir Kulit's question, I mean, I, I think the, the question is almost as good as any answer that we could provide. And, and I think what Alessio was, I wanted to comment just how frustrating it is in university settings to see the only solutions being bottom up. Um, there's only, like, I, I feel like people in universities have relatively little agency, at least from the grassroots to actually make change. But I, I do think that students can make change. So if you want to learn Ukrainian studies, like you can vote with your feet and they might listen to fee paying students more than um, teachers. Um, but I also wanted to comment in terms of the breadth of the genocide that I think environmental destruction as well and kind of the ecocide, like environmental animal um, destruction is also a really important part. Um, the degradation that this will lead to Ukraine's environment um, is also substantial. Um, and lastly, uh, the ISIS Syria, I mean, I'm not going to make comparisons, but I think I always kind of ask the question, like, would Russia's involvement in Syria have been possible without the annexation of Crimea? Because the ways in which troops were mobilized out of Crimea, well, troops and, and naval ships out of Crimea to Syria was both haunting and kind of demonstrating what Russia got when it annexed Crimea. It wasn't the, the kind of pearl of the Russian nationalism. It was a strategic uh, naval base where they could destroy Ukrainian naval uh, forces, although now Russia is leading to its own destruction, um, and enable it to, to participate in that. And, and as much as comparison, I think it's also seeing the interconnectedness. And that is also what I wanted to talk about. I mean, I don't know what will happen next, but I kind of wear two hats in this scenario, both the kind of Crimea hat and also the Moldova hat. And I think there's a kind of humility in like the, the winter is going to be bad in Moldova, but it won't be as bad in Ukraine. Uh, we have a lot of refugees, but at least they're here. And just the bomb threats that have been taking place in, in Chisinau, I mean, across Moldova are kind of unprecedented. And, and the level of anxiety, I think, is... Um, not to be understated in Moldova as well. Transnistria, who knows how that will um, develop. Also local political actors. I mean, Ilan Shore is a, a good example, but I, I think um, it's also worth commenting just kind of the effect this is having outside of Ukraine, particularly on Moldova, who um, does not necessarily have the resources in terms of the, the fuel crisis to address this. Um, but yeah, certainly there's anxiety. Okay, so we'll return to questions uh, in the room. Okay, so, um, right, we have 10 minutes. So let's take the questions and then see how, you know, whether they speak to similar themes. So let's start here, then uh, gentleman there, then lady there. So, yeah, just please wait for the mic. My name is David Morrison. I'm a retired... <coughs> civil servant. I used to run an anti-fraud uh, central operation um, or have a senior role there in the UK. Um, so far as the, U, uh, the Ukraine situation is concerned, um, looking at the four areas that um, Putin has annexed most recently, um, to the extent one can be objective about it, because it was an appalling act, but to the extent one can be objective about it, what are the arguments for these areas being regarded as Russian? 
versus what are the arguments for these areas being regarded as Ukrainian? Just a very quick summary off the top of one's head, really. Thanks very much. Okay, gentlemen there. Uh, I'm a little bit concerned about the language of empire, uh, as I remember from my own history that Europe- I'm sorry, can you please introduce yourself? Uh, David, who I've just visited here. Um, Thank you. That, uh, most of the empires that collapsed after the Second World War. And last time I remember when I was alive, uh, Russia's Soviet empire collapsed in 1989. Um, I think that the language itself belongs in the 1930s and the 1920s and the 19th century. And that we now live in a world of nations and not an imperial world. Where do you get this idea that the Russo Ukrainian war is an imperial one and not a nationalist one. Thank you. My name is Sofia. I'm a, a Ukrainian displaced person working for an, an international development agency. And uh, my question is um, actually about identity. Somehow, uh, Ukraine is a multi ethnic country uh, as well as many other countries, including Russia. And uh, um, right now, many people did speak uh, Russian, but because of the war, now they, whether they are ethnically Polish, Russian, Georgian, Armenian, they choose Ukrainian because their value is freedom and they yeah, want to attribute themselves to being Ukrainian rather than uh, recognizing themselves as by their ethnicity. And it's interesting what, what I'm, uh, I'm observing is that Ukrainian identity has been put under question uh, for 30 years of Ukraine's independence. And every time it's like um, Ukrainian identity, what is it? Why is it causing so many troubles? You know, it's like, and every time it's put, it's scrutinized and put under question. And the more you put something under question, the more people around start, you know, really questioning, is there such a thing as Ukrainian identity? And interestingly, that no one puts and the question Russian identity, what is Russian, you know? Why is this causing so many troubles to the world rather than, you, it's not you, Ukraine which attacks, right? It's the Russia that attacks and causes problems. So why, why don't we put Russian identity on the question? Academically, by the way, thank you. Okay, thank you. The lady also at the back now, Okay, can we just do quick questions now? Yeah, yeah, very quick. Um, uh, Yulia Yurchenko, political economist, scholar of Ukraine. Uh, excellent to be here. Thank you for great discussion. Um, I want to throw uh, an additional one to this conversation about how there aren't any serious changes in how Ukraine is being studied, because I actually monitor Jobs AC UK on a regular basis to see if there is anything going on uh, for Ukraine anywhere in Europe or North America. And no, there isn't. There are no jobs with specialism in Ukraine. So I want, and um, there was a conversation about uh, how do we change the language? How do we transform the perception of Ukraine? And not only, there are a lot of uh, nations within, uh, ethnicities within Russian Federation and in Central Asia and in Far East who are being covered under this blanket of Russia studies. So I want to use this opportunity to, uh, to 
call everybody to be actors, to call students, as it was already mentioned, demand Ukrainian studies, demand Kazakh studies, demand Kyrgyz studies, demand Abkhazia studies. That needs to happen. There won't be a change if that isn't, doesn't happen. Another thing, academics in the room, please let's uh, write to chairs of Russian studies to A, change the names of them, and Olesek has done a lot of calls to that before, uh, but also to actually start having meaningful conversations about uh, transforming how what Russian studies is is and if there hasn't been an exposure of these of this extractivism of expertise let's do a systematic study it, it shouldn't uh, I'm, I'm happy to collaborate with thank somebody you. on that thank, thank you. you we get the point uh question here and very quickly those two questions there just a um, question, please. Good evening. Yes, I, my name is Oksana Patapova. I'm a gender, peace and security scholar with the gender department uh, here at LSE. Uh, my question uh, may deserve a separate discussion, uh, but I did want to follow the thought on interconnectedness and uh, an apprehension that I have as well as a Ukrainian that this uh, conversation becomes just another regional issue or another regional topic and a new conflict coming to, to, to the horizon will overshadow it. What I keep thinking and reflecting on myself is whether this uh, specific invasion and the nature of this war will actually have any transformative effect on the infrastructure of regional or global security and politics and, and how we conceptualize politics, uh, you know, looking at UN Security Council, for example. It seems that we still live in a post-World War II world where US and, and Russia binary is still maintained. And uh, I wonder whether from an academic perspective or other locations where you are based, you are already seeing potentials for that transformation or on the other hand, sort of a uh, phasing out in the horizon of another another country re-emerging, but the global world order is never going to transform radically as a Thank result you. of this. Thank, Thank you, Oksana. And two very quick questions, yeah. not just questions. Yeah? I am Cord, I'm a master science student with the European Institute. My question is, um, since, the, since Putin's invasion of Ukraine, um, there has been a some sort of hesitant, hesitancy among European politi politicians and Germany included to send heavy weapons to Ukraine to support Ukrainians in this war. Um, and that just recently included, uh, I think, tanks as well. And how would you explain that hesitancy and um, where are they are somewhat misguided? Okay. And the question, yeah? Yeah, uh, I'm Donato, a poli uh, social poly uh, student here in the LSC, master. And basically, uh, I want to I want to be an actor as well, but uh, I assume the responsibility of what I'm saying. I come from a country in which useful idiots, we are a lot of useful idiots, I'm Italian. And first and experience, and I think you know we- Question. Uh, yes. How you respond to the people who uh, believe in uh, Mersheimer theory of maybe it's our fault, NATO. How do you respond to people that uh, pa pacifists to say, well, we want to end the war, therefore we don't want to send weapons. And how to uh, answer to the people who say, well, it's not our war because if we stop the sanctions, we we stop with the cost of living and so on. Those are. Okay, uh, so what we'll do just now, uh, a round of uh, concluding comments. I haven't forgotten uh, our participants online. We also had a question uh, from uh, uh, Jan Kaliki from Wilson Center in Washington, DC, uh, who is following us, uh, LC alumnus. He's also asking about what government, Western governments should now do. What about tanks, fighters, 
longer range artillery, et cetera, et cetera. And um, there was a little bit of a, a, a sort of response comment from Ian, Boyd, who's, uh, Ian Bond, who said he wasn't intending to put responsibility on Ukrainians for changing Russians' perceptions in his questions. Uh, no, that wasn't your question, but Olesia made the point that that shouldn't be done, just to clarify. So uh, very... Uh, I mean, this is this discussion could continue, but we are basically um, at the end of our time. So I'll just kindly ask you for concluding comments. I think it's always really interesting to hear all the questions, even though we can't really take them uh, individually. Uh, maybe start uh, the other way around now. Ellie, you first. Um, I mean, I was thinking about the the question about the four there was a question about the four regions uh, as Russian I mean to whom I, anyway um as, as I talked about in my talk I think even the idea of Crimean Crimea as uh Russian is so complexified when you look at what identity means and in particular I mean one thing that really drove me in my work was stopping the illusion between the ethnicity means anything about political preferences or territorial preferences. You can speak Russian, you can identify as ethnically Russian and want zero to do with the Russian state, want zero to do with um, annexation, secession, separatism, etc. Like those, are, you can be locally Russian without identifying with the Russian state. And I just wanted to kind of say a, a very small anecdote about how Kherson was seen from Crimea, because I think, you know, I talked about the, the importance of civic identity in, in Crimea and identification with Ukraine. But even within that context, Kherson was seen as like, that's real Ukraine. There are real Ukrainians in Kherson. Like we're kind of like mm, a bit like we're trying, but Kherson is like, so the idea that they're now suddenly seen as Russian and pro-Russian, I think is completely uh, rushing over um, not only the complexity of identity, but the legitimacy of people's rights to, to identify as that in the first place. And I, I wanted to, sorry, very quickly, quickly I yeah. think, I think we should have been more concerned about how people were being arrested for um, engaging with the statue of Shevchenko in Crimea after annexation, because in a way that was a precursor for everything that we observe now, the Russian mm. state kind of got away with it, mm. um, but now they're doing it in a much larger and terrifying scale. Draw mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Thank you all for your now. questions and comments. And I, I think like Denise said, we, we can't possibly get to all of them, but they were important to hear. Um, first of all, on the question of empire, thank you for the question. Um, I'm going to try to attach it and connect it to another question here and, and to point to a problem um, with contemporary Russian national identity. And that is that Russia has been contending with this confusion between empire and nation. Uh, it can identify itself as either an empire or a nation. Obviously, we can talk about empire still existing now. Of course, there was a great deal of fascinating theoretical and conceptual work on the question of American capitalism and empire. But we have in the case of today's Russia, a state that has a very open uh, practical relationship with imperial practices of population control, mm -hmm. just to give you one example. So I mentioned to you this practice of settler colonialism, of uh, effacing and replacing indigenous peoples on the periphery of one's political 
uh, remit. That is something that the Russians have done repeatedly. There's cultural imperialism that we've just talked about as well. So it's very much alive, but it's important for us to understand how Russians and the Russian leadership still struggles with this inability to um, detach empire and nation. The other thing is, of course, the question of this fear of escalation among Western powers identifying um, and, and siding and supporting the Ukrainian state. Um, I think back again to what Orwell called uh, the unnecessary war. So he called the Second World War the unnecessary war because he realized and could see in real time moments in which we could have taken more aggressive action to prevent Nazi Germany from uh, accelerating its expansion across uh, the continent and having tanks roll across European borders. So this fear of escalation should not stop us from sticking to our principles, to adhering to international law and delivering on things like the Budapest Memorandum of 1996, for instance, in which we here in the UK, as well as the United States, um, France, and of course, Russia as well, pledge to defend and support Ukraine should it be a victim of aggression, that we would protect it and help it in case in which it, in, in, in which uh, its territorial integrity was infringed. So um, those are just two comments I'll leave here, but I know we're short of time, so. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do my very best to be very, very brief. Um, on, I really didn't think that we would need seven months into this full-scale invasion need to still discuss the difference between Russophone and Russian and pro-Russian and so on, but it seems like we do. Uh, if we consider Russophone territories of Ukraine as somehow pro-Russian or Russian, uh, we may as well start to consider Scotland and Ireland mm -hmm. as English. Uh, tell that to the Scots and the Irish. Um, but let's remember this that those uh, territories that Putin is trying to annex and the, the Russian troops have occupied for a long time, when they are being liberated by the Ukrainian armed forces, what is uncovered is mass graves. Mass graves, torture chambers, and complete destruction of life of citizens that were mostly Russophone and were identified as part of the Russian world. Yeah. Let's not forget about that. Uh, the second thing I wanted to mention is about Russia being or not being an empire. Uh, it suddenly expanded after the Second World War because the Soviet Union acquired other territories uh, as a result of the Second World War, and the Allies allowed it to keep the territories that it grabbed annexed in Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, in the pact uh, that uh, was made with Nazi Germany in 1939. Um, and Moscow uh, denies subjectivity to all non-Russian, uh, non-Russians within Russia and outside of its borders and the immediate neighbors. So if Moscow behaves like an imperial center, it, it is an imperial center. Essentially, that's what it wants to do. It's, you know, it denies subjectivity to everybody who's non-Russian. Uh, on the heavy weapons, <laughs> I, I'm not going to comment on that. I just want to say that those people who, you know, keep hesitating to send or not to send countries, I should say states, uh, to send uh, heavy weapons tend to be the ones who say we don't want to get too involved in this war, right? Mm -hmm. We don't want to get too actively involved. And yet those are, those tend to be the states that have been purchasing and relying on Russian gas and oil. So essentially funding this war from the start. Uh, so they have been involved. I just don't think there has been enough soul searching for them to admit that. And finally, uh, stopping uh, stopping the war in Ukraine will you know, relieve us of our problems, will bring the prices down. Well, that's just not a pragmatic way to think about it. It'll 
potentially delay, but in, in my view, exacerbate our problems because appeasing Moscow, as we've seen over the last eight years and more than that, I would say, I would claim centuries, has exacerbated, has emboldened the rulers in the Kremlin to, you know, to keep blackmailing the world to uh, use nuclear terrorism now as well as uh, weaponize energy and so on. So, no, it's stopping the war in Ukraine without winning the war in Ukraine isn't going to uh, make our problems go away and certainly isn't going to make Ukrainian problems of Ukrainians go away. Okay, so all I uh, can do now is just thank uh, our uh, panelists uh, for your really insightful uh, contribution and such a productive discussion triggered by this question of identity. Um, thank, uh, thank you to you, to you all uh, for all your questions, including uh, our audience uh, online. There are three wonderful books that you could uh, sort of uh, check out if you're interested to delve deeper. Olesia's book, The Death of a Soldier Told by His Sister. Rory's book about uh, on Crimea, um, Blood of Others. Uh, Stalin's Crimean Atrocity and the Poetics of Solidarity. And um, I would like to uh, invite you, if uh, you have time to stay on, We'll have a little uh, reception uh, to celebrate Ellie's book that is hot off the press uh, on kin majorities. If you're interested in um, discussions, uh, research and events about conflict, I would also like to encourage you to follow our Conflict Justice and Peace platform, which is um, uh, at LSCCJP on Twitter, where uh, uh, you can find all information of all events having uh, to do with conflict and peace studies, uh, obviously prominently about uh, Ukraine events, but also all other events. Um, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.